This is an ABC podcast. Tensions between Iran and the United States continue to escalate, with President Trump today signing an executive order targeting Iran's supreme leader with financial sanctions. These measures represent a strong and proportionate response to Iran's increasingly provocative actions. We will continue to increase pressure on Tehran. While Iran's ambassador to the UN, Majid Ravanchi, says the sanctions mean a permanent closure of diplomacy. The US decision today to impose more sanctions against Iran is yet another indication of continued US hostility against the Iranian people and their leaders. Iran and America have despised each other for decades. The Americans see Iran as a nation of Islamic extremists and terrorists, while Iranians believe America is an imperial power determined to destroy their nation and their revolution. So why do these two nations hate each other? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. Oddly enough, the story begins with the British in the Middle East during the first part of the 20th century. It's a story about oil, the Cold War and the jostling for power in the region. Malcolm Byrne is Deputy Director for the Non-Governmental National Security Archive based at George Washington University. Britain was the great power in the region for a long time. It had been a rival of Russia, but it had essentially predominated, especially in certain parts of the country that were rich in oil. And through the what was then called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, Britain essentially dominated Iran's oil industry. Following World War II, Britain, of course, was its economy was pretty devastated, and it came to rely on some of its overseas facilities and programs to a greater degree. And its most expansive area of interest was Iran, where the British government owned, I think, 51% of AIOC, of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And so it depended quite a bit on that, and that is why, as the spirit of nationalism rose in Iran during the late 1940s and early 1950s, this whole issue became an extremely urgent one for London. According to Anoush Etashami, Professor of International Relations at Durham University, the presence of the Russians in the northern part of Iran at the end of World War II was a critical issue for the United States. Northern Iran, northwest Iran to be precise, was very much that line drawn on the mountains between the west and the east, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union's refusal to leave Iranian territory opened up this new concerns about what became known as Soviet aggression, and then the containment strategy the United States put in place to try and contain the Soviet Union's expansion into the warm waters of the Persian Gulf and into what America regarded as its strategic interest in that region, which ultimately was, of course, energy. So in that context, the Shah of Iran is entrusted by the Americans not only to keep this barrier, but also to make sure that oil continues to flow. All of that begins to unravel when Prime Minister Mossadegh emerges as this strong nationalist figure as Prime Minister, supported by the Iranian Parliament, to try and change the balance of power in the consortium of oil producers and the Iranian government. That was the clincher, the critical point. And Mossadegh from 51 to 53 was 
driving this agenda. And he was seen truly as a menace to Western interests. And it is in that context then that Britain and the United States begin to plot to ensure that his government is short-lived. The Near East became another world trouble spot with the nationalization and seizure of the world's largest oil refinery in Abadan in Iran. A fifth of the world's oil supply was cut off and nationalist feeling ran high against Britain and the Western democracies. Attempts to arbitrate the differences made by America's Averill Harriman failed to solve the Anglo-Iranian dispute. Premier Mossadegh, spearhead of the oil nationalization program, took his case to the United Nations, where he remained adamant in his stand and raised the specter of possible Russian intervention and acquisition of the huge oil reserves. This is actually a debate whether it was about the issue of oil or if it was about a fear of communism. Usama Khalil, Associate Professor of History at Syracuse University. So from Washington's perspective, they did not believe that Mossadegh was a communist, but what they were afraid of is that because of what they saw as his being a demagogue, that he was unreliable, and because of some of the reforms he was implementing, that he would create instability in the country that would lead to the rise of the Communist Party in in Iran. There's another based on recent set of declassified documents which seem to lean in another direction, which is that this was really about the control of Iran's oil resources. And now these two may not be mutually exclusive. In other words, Eisenhower comes into office in January 1953, and from what we can tell, planning for the coup, which had been at a low level, overthrowing Mossadegh, really kicks in after Eisenhower becomes president, and has support from elements of the Iranian military, which want a more emboldened Shah. So there's a constitutional monarchy. The Shah is very weak, and most of the power is now controlled within the hands of the parliament and the prime minister. So from the American perspective, this fits into a kind of a broader Cold War narrative. Iran borders the Soviet Union. How can we prevent greater Soviet influence in the region? And of course, it fits into the domino theory, which is that if Iran were to fall to communism, that this would open up the broader Persian Gulf to communist influence and threaten the world's major oil resources. Iran, 1953. The CIA mounted its first major covert operation to overthrow a foreign government. The target was the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. He held power legitimately through his country's parliamentary process, and he was popular. Washington had once looked to him as the man to prevent a communist takeover. But that was before Mossadegh decided that the Iranian state, not British companies, ought to own and control the oil within Iran's own borders. When he nationalized the British-run oil fields, Washington saw red. But I think far more serious in some ways for the Americans, and what really switched the Americans over, was the fact that they saw Mossadegh and the nationalization of Iranian oil as a challenge to their own oil interests in the region. Ali Ansari, Professor of Iranian History at the University of St Andrews. While I do think, obviously, the Cold War narrative in the background was there, I think there was a very hard-nosed corporate aspect to it about basically oil interests in the region and what the Americans felt might be a challenge ultimately to their interests. So in 1952, in actual fact, the British were expelled from Iran, you know, diplomatic relations were closed. And as a consequence of that, of course, a lot of the operational matters for the coup then fell on the Americans. And the Americans had a fairly sophisticated network already in Iran, prepared really because for Cold War reasons. Basically, they'd set up a network effectively of, of agents and others that were there meant to be, you know, in case of a Soviet attack. They then turned this network really against the domestic government. 
The Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and his brother Alan, director of the CIA, decided with Eisenhower's approval to overthrow Mossadegh and reinstate the Shah of Iran. The mobs paid by the CIA and the police and soldiers bribed by the CIA drove Mossadegh from office. At the beginning, there was a considerable amount of support for the Shah. Part of the reason why Mossadegh was ultimately ousted was that the view was widespread that he opposed having the Shah in power, or at least having the power that he wielded, and that he might even be in favor of some increased communist influence and things like that. Now, a certain amount of that public opinion undoubtedly came from a concentrated U.S. covert plan to foment exactly those kinds of doubts within the Iranian body politic against Mossadegh. Be that as it may, the fact seems to be that a sufficient number of Iranians wanted the Shah to continue in power, and that was what motivated them to vote by marching on the streets and working to undermine the then prime minister. And there are elements within Iran, both within the military, within the very conservative clergy, that the U.S. finds very willing allies to overthrow Mossadegh's government and install or reinstall an empowered Shah. And that's essentially what happens, is that the Shah will come back in after Mossadegh is overthrown and arrested and tried and put under house arrest. And you'll have a security service that's created, created actually by, you know, not just the the CIA, but the New Jersey State Police. For those of you listeners who don't know, New Jersey is a state in the United States and will become a really fearsome intelligence service within Iran, and one that the CIA throughout the Cold War is going to increasingly rely on. After the Shah is reinstalled, after Mossadegh is overthrown, the United States now takes a major interest in Iranian oil in a way that they didn't have before. So in this consortium that's created after the coup, the United States now takes something in the area of 40% of the profits from the oil sales. The only thing that we can guarantee is that we are not going to cut it off. The oil will flow. The Shah clearly felt that he owed his remaining in power to the U.S. There are a number of pieces of evidence about this, but one that I find compelling comes from a cable that I found in the National Archives, and it was from the U.S. ambassador in Baghdad writing back to the State Department about a conversation he had just had with the Shah, and the Shah was extremely grateful for the help that he was getting, And uh, they both agreed that it was very important to keep silent the existence of foreign hands in this operation. So the Shah felt obligated to the U.S., and the U.S. was very happy that this had all turned out, and they, they felt they now had a loyal ally in the region. He has a very close relationship with the United States and, of course, with Britain. He will be promoted from the mid-50s up until almost his overthrow. As a staunch Cold War ally of the United States, it's something he plays into. He will have relations with multiple presidents. He's reinstalled under Eisenhower. He will have good relations with the Eisenhower administration. They will pump a lot of money into Iran to bolster his regime. He will be promoted in the Western press, particularly in the American press. Universities will play a role. The Shah will receive honorary degrees from universities like Harvard. He will be promoted as this modernizing reformer, a secular but devout man, very close ties. In fact, the the ties are almost too close. So by the late 1960s, early 1970s, the United States decides effectively, because it's bogged down the war in Vietnam, that it really can't maintain its interest around the globe. And there's a real 
interest at this point by the Nixon administration. So it's important to remember Nixon was Eisenhower's vice president. He has developed a long-term relationship with the Shah. And what becomes known as the Nixon Doctrine, which is the United States effectively deferring to local allies for the containment of Soviet influence or pushing back Soviet influence. And the Shah is very eager to take this role on. And what that means is the Shah and Iran will become the regional policemen for the Persian Gulf in a time when the United States feels it cannot, and Britain is steadily withdrawing from the Persian Gulf region. So what we're going to start to see from the late 60s into the 70s are large-scale arms sales by the United States to Iran. This also matches increasing oil prices through the 60s into the 70s, so he actually has more money to build up his military. And what we see is that by the mid-1970s, the Iranian economy is going to overheat. The Shah is buying all kinds of advanced weapons from the United States. His defense budget increases something like 800% over four or five years. At the same time, that's causing a lot of instability in Iran economically. And so, as you can imagine, there's high inflation. There's a big push from the rural areas into urban areas. There's a lot of dislocation. And the Shah is becoming increasingly repressive. But... In terms of his relationship with the United States, much of this is kind of pushed under the rug and ignored by Washington. It's not ignored by human rights organizations, which are complaining about the Shah's rule and documenting the Shah's kind of abusive rule. The other factor is that the United States has increasingly come to rely on the Shah, not just as a regional policeman, but to spy on the Soviet Union. So the United States is actually not conducting a lot of intelligence inside Iran. Most of it is using Iran to spy on the Soviet Union, you know, kind of as a major listening station and for its intelligence agents to be based there. But they're not spying on Iran. So they really have no idea what's going on inside Iran, Iranian politics, and that will come to a head in 78. You're with Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. Through the latter part of the 1970s, opposition to the Shah's repressive rule increased dramatically and eventually erupted into a revolution in 1979. The chanting voices of the steadily swelling multitude of anti-Shah demonstrators in Tehran. Peter Monckton reports this morning from the Iranian capital that the two days of mass street protests have made a national hero of Ayatollah Khomeini, the 86-year-old Muslim leader now living in exile in Paris. The protests were really kicked off due to the actions of the Shah in criticizing a member of the clergy who's actually in exile at that point, Ayatollah Khomeini, who will become a major player, obviously, after the revolution. Uh, but at that point, he's in exile. And so what will start off as an initial set of protests in response to some insults that are leveled against Ayatollah Khomeini in the press tied to the Shah because of the harsh crackdown on those protests. And so this is kind of typical. So, you remember, this is effectively an autocratic police state. Those who spoke out were often arrested, were tortured. If you were lucky, you got out. If there were large-scale protests, they were cracked down on, either by the military or the security services or both. And so we'll have this cycle of protests, shootings by the military, 40 days of mourning, and then even bigger protests, larger number of shootings. And this will all kind of bubble through up through about September of 78. At this point, it's the Carter administration in the United States, and they're really caught off guard by this. They don't really know how to respond. The internal discussions, from what we can tell, are that they believe that the Shah has this under control. He's had things like this pop up before, and this can really be managed. And really, through the fall of 78, they believe that the Shah is going to be able to take care of the problem. But they also are, I mean, staggeringly unaware when we look at some of the discussions of what comprises the opposition in Iran, because they're so beholden to 
Iranian intelligence from most of their information, that they're not even sure which individuals will be leaders of this opposition. They've had almost no contact with Ayatollah Khomeini, who's in exile at that point in Paris. What we get to see is kind of an administration that's really caught off guard and constantly reacting to events and reacting very slowly, oftentimes at cross-purposes. So we'll have issues between what the president, in this case President Carter, is saying to the Shah and to Western allies, what his national security advisors, Mignu Brzezinski, is saying to the Shah and to Western allies, and what Secretary of State Cyrus Vance is saying. One historian, one biographer of President Carter has written that President Carter inherited a bad situation and made the worst of it. And people waving at the soldiers and celebrating this final departure by the Shah. The unthinkable has finally happened. The Shah of Iran has left. When the Shah leaves in January 1979, things begin to unravel very, very quickly. And the Americans are left between the rock and the hard place. Whether they support this transitional government of Shapur Bakhtiar that the Shah had put in place, or whether they try and reach out to the opposition and therefore undermine the government of Iran. When the students entered the American embassy, they told them we don't want Well, to the event that the United States has always feared in Iran has now taken place. 400 armed students have taken over the U.S. embassy and are holding diplomats hostage. They're demanding that Washington send back the Shah from America, where he's undergoing cancer treatment. The Iranians then begin to demand the return of the Shah. And I think this is the turning point in the worsening relations, where the Americans are honor-bound to come to the rescue of an ailing, ill ally of decades. And as they do, then we begin to see the Iranians take much, much, much harder line against the Americans, where first they want the return of assets as they saw them in the United States, and secondly, that they wanted the return of the Shah to be prosecuted in Iran. And the American reluctance to respond to these leads to the hostage-taking of November 1979. From then on, this sense of suspicion has never really gone away. The Iranians now are convinced that America is against the revolution and that it'll do everything and anything it can to undo the revolution. It's hard to overstate the impact. It might not have been as great an impact as 9-11, but it's somewhere near there. We lost our big ally in the region. The Soviets seem to be taking advantage of all this. But then on top of that, there is the undeniable breach of international law and moral and ethical behavior of taking hostages, of going into sovereign territory and took innocent civilians, as they were seen, hostage. So this was a crisis on many levels, and it just sent shudders throughout the American public. During the 1980s, the war between Iran and Iraq isolated Iran from the international community, most of whom were supporting and even arming Iraq. But in the 1990s, there were attempts on both sides for some form of detente. The 90s has to be seen in the context of massive transformations in Iran itself, where the Iranians begin to come to terms with the revolution and a decade lost in the 1980s. And from within the elite itself, people like Ayatollah Hashimi Rasanjani begin to talk about the need to reform. And he carried the population with him with a massive voter turnout and support. And part of the reform agenda was to restore relations with the international community 
including with the West. The U.S. at that time was still, relatively speaking, off the agenda, but the Iranians were not averse to some kind of a dialogue, even the Americans. That period doesn't mount to much because of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, which brings half a million American troops into Iran's neighborhood. So that period, again, is, if you like, wasted opportunity. In 1997 is perhaps the best opportunity that we have for a closer rapprochement. Mohammad Khatami, a profoundly reformist liberal person with a small L, a cleric comes to power and he begins to pose the dialogue of civilizations where there should be closer relations between all civilizations and therefore there is no hostility between the West and Islam. And while President Clinton is very keen to respond to this, at the same time in the US, there are huge pressures to contain Iran. And so while in the early 1970s, we had twin pillars in support of Iran, in the Clinton era, we have the dual containment, which puts Iran and Iraq in the same basket of containment. And so Khatami's efforts are again null and void. And when 9-11 happens in September 2001, Iran again reaches out to the Americans. Iranian population are very much in sympathy with Americans here. And Iranians are very keen to highlight that their brand of Islam, Shiism, had not unleashed this terror on American soil, but it was the Wahhabi, Salafi, and Saudi-supported Sunni Muslims who had done this. But even that didn't really cut much mustard with the Americans, and the Americans began to brush all Muslims as antagonistic and hostile. And again, very soon after that, President Bush invades Afghanistan. And two years later, in March of 2003, the new doctrine of preemptive strike. And Bush's allies in the administration begin to talk about Iran being the next target. And this is terrifying sitting in Tehran for the Iranian leaders. And it's made much, much worse when President Bush declares that Iran, Iraq, and North Korea are this so-called axis of evil. To my mind, the greatest missed opportunity for both Iran and the United States occurs between that period of 1998 through to about 2001, 2002. I think even after 9-11, when it was quite apparent that the hijackers were mainly Saudi and Egyptian, you know, there was a time when a pivot could have been made. But of course, then we forget all the vested interests within the Middle East itself. And I include the Turks, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the others, who all were very anxious. And this is, again, goes back to this notion that the relationship between Iran and the United States is a much more intimate one than people think. There's always been this sort of longing fear among many of the Arabs that all of a sudden Iran and the United States are going to kiss and make up and they're all going to go back to what was beforehand. And this really causes a lot of dread with a lot of them because, of course, it would change the nature of the dynamic of the political setup in the Middle East. So there were opportunities, but I think both sides essentially missed them. During the Obama administration, a nuclear agreement was reached, the JCPOA, or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, between Iran and the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, including America. When a more accommodationist approach is taken, as we saw under Obama in the second term, so not in the first term, but in the second term, it opens up a window for the reformists to emerge. And that's effectively what we get when we get the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, what's known as the JCPOA, is that effectively the reformers are given a chance in Iran. 
And what's since happened with the United States withdrawing and with a much more confrontational approach, not just in terms of rhetoric, but openly adopting a regime change policy by the Trump administration, it's again weakened the reformers in Iran. It's allowed the hardliners to basically say, we told you so. You know, we told you they couldn't be trusted. I mean, the fact is, of course, there are moderates in Iran, but a lot of these moderates are in prison. I mean, this is, you know, and I say to people, I say, well, you know, the problem is ever since 2009, it's the presidential election crisis of 2009. Essentially, those moderates were crushed. Rouhani is a pragmatist, and he's also a bit of an opportunist. But he's never actually really done anything. I mean, he's not done anything in a political sense or a social sense to ameliorate some of the political oppression that's going on. And the situation in many ways is getting worse. And while he's there, and he's there as the president, and you've got Zarif as his foreign minister, you know, the question is, how much influence do they have at the heart of government? And at the end of the day, you know, what we're seeing in Iran is, yes, they all sit around the high table with Khamenei as the chairman of the board. But frankly, they're sitting at the far end of the high table. They're right at the far end. They're occasionally asked for their views, but they're not really taken seriously. So the point is, is that whether Trump's arrival or the JCP, you know, whether that was in, in any sense going to empower moderates, that was the idea. The problem is you have to have moderates to empower. The problem is, is that many of the people who the Iranians themselves consider to be moderates are just nowhere near the political scene at the moment. They're nowhere near. Power at the moment is invested in the supreme leader with the Revolutionary Guard. And the, these are the two axes that really operate. So I think the hawks certainly make a lot of capital and exploit the situation to their advantage. But the situation in Iran certainly is more difficult because of the situation as it's developed since 2009. I think there were three fundamental reasons for President Trump's decision. One, is that many of the people in his administration had this inherent hostility towards the Islamic Republic. He himself had said during the campaign that Iran is a Nazi state and the JCPOA is a bad deal. So there was internal pressures and there was internal incentives for him to move away from the deal. Secondly, he remains incredibly hostile to anything that the Obama administration achieved. And if this was President Obama's biggest achievement internationally, then Trump was bound to go after it and to dismantle it. And the third, as you alluded to, of course, is pressure from within the region itself. When Trump comes to power, the Arab Spring is turned into an Arab winter. There are bushfires in Syria, in Libya, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Yemen, and elsewhere in the region. America's interests are endangered. And Iran is seen by America's allies, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, as the main beneficiary of Arab uprisings. And the more Iran is involved in Syria, the more it is involved in Yemen, the more it supports the Shias in Bahrain and in Saudi Arabia and in Iraq, the more fearful and hostile America's allies in the region get. And while they felt that Obama did not have a listening ear, in Trump they found a willing ally in not just contain Iran, but to try and roll back Iran's influence. And so when you get those three, inevitably, Trump's strategy of an aggressive reaction to Iran wins the day.
I think from a Western sense, what I would like to see is people in the West actually taking the problem of Iran in a sense much more seriously, less as a sort of a, a marginal issue or a sort of a tangential issue. I think people should focus on the issue of Iran and say, you know, where do we want to be in 10 years' time? Where do we want to be in 20 years' time? And how are we planning to get there? Our problem in the West has been that largely we've tended to be very reactive we haven't really had the patience to deal with this as a strategic issue, which I have to say the Russians do. I mean, the one advantage of Putin, as unpleasant as he is, is that certainly for those rulers in the Middle East, is he seems to have a strategy and he sticks to it. Whereas the West seems to be sixes and sevens about what he's planning to do and doesn't really have a plan. Ali Ansari. Professor of Iranian History at the University of St Andrews. My other guests, Usama Khalil, Associate Professor of History at Syracuse University, and the Professor of International Relations at Durham University, Anoush Etashami, and Malcolm Byrne, Deputy Director for the Non-Governmental National Security Archive based at George Washington University. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.